Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Our Father, by the mercies of God, we will listen to your word. We will rejoice even in the prospect of dying to ourself. Uh, no one will be exalted unless they're first humbled. And yet, it's our joy. It's our joy. It should be our pleasure that dying to ourselves means living to God, living in the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who we trust with our whole selves. So help us to follow him with our whole selves. In Christ's name, amen. We spent all last week, the, in the entire sermon, just on that beginning portion of this verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And Paul is urgent in what he has to say. He's urgent like a pastor. He's urgent pleading with this church at Rome and with you and I to listen to what he has to say. And not only to listen, but to respond in the manner of which he calls us to. There's no house without a foundation. There's no hope of eternal life, therefore, and there's no pleasing God in our conduct apart from the mercies of God. That's why I spent so much time on it. That's why Paul has spent 11 chapters describing the mercies of God as they've come to sinners in the world through the gospel of God concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And our text today is of no less importance in regards to what is expected of everyone who has received the mercies of God. Have you? Are you a Christian? Do you trust your whole self to Jesus Christ, the man whom God gave, the Son of God, who was sent from heaven, who lived in perfect conformity to the law, who never sinned once and yet died? Why did he die if he didn't die for his own sins? He died for ours, the Bible says. While we were yet in our sin, the love of God was on display when he gave his son to die for sinners. If you've trusted in him, not that he just died, but that he rose again, the Bible says there in the first 11 chapters that you're justified. God has declared you to be righteous, not because you're righteous, but because Jesus was righteous. And your trusting in him, the Bible says, is a union with him. And so we've been reunited with him in his death, and we are united with him in his life. And so today in our text and through the remaining portions all the way through uh, chapter 15, the apostle will be describing what is essential to the Christian ethic. How does a Christian, one who sees himself and herself in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in Christ, how do we live our life? And today is the very basic pattern of that life described for us in this first verse of chapter 12. We don't have to go very far in our text to see how impossible this is apart from the mercies of God. We see this first point that I'll bring up this morning is just the second part of the verse, the living way of sacrifice. The living way of sacrifice. Where the apostle says, I appeal or I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Everything is about the mercies of God. To Because of that, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
If you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're asking, how do I live in this world as a result of my faith in Christ, this is for you. God expects this of you as a result of the mercies he has poured out upon you. No one is accepted. If you are in the beloved, if you are in Christ, this is what is expected of you. This could be, as stated, as God established you in his mercies in order to fulfill this lifestyle, to fulfill this pattern of life in you. You reside in the mercies of God so that you will conform to this pattern of life. Do you care about the gospel? Do you care about the mercies of God? Do you care about your Lord Jesus Christ? Really, all of that is concerning this next question. Do you care about what pattern of life he demands of you? If you care about the first, you'll care about the second. And he says here, the pattern is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That, that word, those two words, to present, means to make yourself available to give yourself for an appropriate use. In Romans 6.13, he used this word in a negative context. He said, do not present your members, that is your bodily instruments, your members, tools that you have in your bodies, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, from death to life. There is a living quality about our sacrifice, you see here. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what you're doing with yourself, your body, your eyes, your nose, your ears, your hands, your feet, use them for righteousness, not for unrighteousness. Present them for that end. In this context, in chapter 12, verse 1, there's an added component of this, though. There's an added necessary quality as we think about doing this in the world. This is the necessary qualification. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, body certainly means our physical members. This temple that we have, this outward form that we are in part. Romans 6.13 most likely means our whole selves in action. As it meant there, it, it doesn't just mean one particular part of our body or the body as, as it were a, an edifice or an outward form, but presenting all that we are in our bodily activity to God is what the apostle means in chapter 12, verse 1. What you do with your body is what concerns the apostle. It's teaching. It's what the apostle is concerned about. God calls us to present our bodies so that is not merely concerned with what we desire or what we are thinking here. He's actually concerned with our conduct here. He will get to our thinking, especially in verse 2. But by his mercy, God owns all of us, not just your pattern of life, not just your desires, not just your passions. He owns what you do with your body. 1 Corinthians 6.12, after already describing that our bodies, your body, is a member of Christ. Think of that. A Christian in the world is part of Christ's body. The way you use your body, therefore, is how Christ is used in the world. 
You imagine that? And so then he says in verse 20, that we were bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body, which belongs to Christ. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, when he gave himself a propitiation, when he bled, when he paid your redemption price, he bought you to himself. He bought you out of sin, chapter 6 of Romans. He bought you out of the death that that sin would bring you, certainly. And he brought you to a new life, which is in him a life of service as part of his body. We, as Christians, it was a defaming term to be called a Christian in the Greek world. Because to them, that was foolish. You're following this man who was murdered? who was rather crucified, crucifixion was a shameful, the most shameful way of dying in that part. And these people that follow Jesus want to be like him? That is foolishness to the Greek, Paul says. That's what you're called to be, according to the gospel, according to the mercies of God. You're called, you see what Paul is saying here in a nutshell, is present your bodies to God the way Jesus did. The way Jesus did. Paul puts this in light of our union with Christ in chapter 6, 6 through 12, where he says, We know this about ourselves. Do you know this about yourself as a Christian? That your old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is the condition that we are in. By nature, apart from Christ, we do what sin demands of us. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For, for the death he died, he died to sin once, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So here's the therefore for us. So you also must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What is he speaking about here? The way that we conduct ourselves in this life should be after the pattern of the gospel that we believe. We believe that we died with Christ. He died for our sins and our sins are dead. They're put to death in him so that in his life, which we live in, which we hope in, which we trust in, which we have all our confidence in, should be the pattern for our living so that we live righteously in this world because we're in union with Christ. So we are presenting or we are rendering our bodies to God for this service, but in what way does this appear? And this is how it appears, as a living sacrifice. And here we see, as we should understand, the degree to which we are presenting our bodies before God. And some have argued that this is a one-time act, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, something like a second round of regeneration. You know, the the spirit gives life. The, The flesh is of no value at all. Right? And the new birth comes through the Spirit, and, and the Spirit, he acts like the wind, and no one knows where he comes or where he goes, but, but the, the conversion of a Christian is one that is done by the Word of God, by the work of the Spirit of God. 
not of our own doing. And they would say, well, what happens here is that what we should call people to do is say, God, here I present my body to you, and you do this once, and then you're good to go the rest of your life. That's not what the, the sense is and the tense that the apostle is speaking here. He is saying, when you recognize the mercies of God, which should be repeated, next week we're going to have the Lord's Supper. I thought it was this week. I thought, well, I'll just perfectly remind us that this is to teach us about the mercies of God over and over again so that we'll remember that over and over again. And when you wake up tomorrow, you're supposed to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mercies of God are not a one-time event for you. They hold you. Yes, they saved you in Christ and his once for all time work is done, but he holds you. The Spirit abides with you. The Spirit is with you. The Spirit is in you. God is graciously preserving you now. And now, today and tomorrow and forever, we are to present our bodies as so long as we are on this earth as a living sacrifice. The problem with the once for all is that it does not regard the continual mercies of God, the once for all. I commit myself to you. No, you commit yourself to God today, tomorrow, always. He is always the one who's been merciful to you. This isn't making a decision. This is recognizing the Mount Everest of mercy upon which you stand. Do you recognize that to you to stand in the gospel it costs the life of the Son of God. The Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Nobody is more valuable than Jesus Christ. Nobody comes close. And the, the Father knew this. And the Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. He gave him up for us. It's looking at this mercy. It's knowing that we can call God, the creator of heaven and earth, being as sinful as we are, Father. Father. It's knowing the mercies of God that should result in our willingness to put our whole self, all of our bodily activity, at his disposal. To present our bodies a living sacrifice then means that we are to ever offer our bodily conduct to God in a self-sacrificing order in order to do his will, manner in order to do his will. And that means that we cut ourselves off from things that come naturally to us. <laughs> the sins of the flesh come very naturally to us. We're going to learn next week is verse 2 really is a, is a way of explaining chap, verse 1 here. But we're going to learn next week how, you know, the way that the world speaks and the way of the world is so much like a current. We're in Hanalei yesterday and this analogy hit me. You know, when, when the waves are big and you're out there, unless you're paying attention and you're caught in that current, you're just in it. And you're playing around and you're just, you're just in the current. And, and if you're not paying attention, if you're not reminded of the mercies of God, you are going to go with that current. And you might be having fun in it. You might be 
playing, but as soon as that thing tows you out, you realize there's a consequence. And this is the way the world evades us all the time. But this is why sacrifice, and it's hard sometimes to get out of the current. I mean, if you're in a lineup, sometimes you have to keep paddling to stay out of the, the current so you can get some of the joy of the wave, right? And I'm not a surfer, but these are true analogies, I hope, surfers, right? No, maybe not. I think they are. But it's about putting our conduct fully at God's disposal, even against what could be considered natural for us. Beware of what people say. If it comes natural to you, do it. Sin comes very natural to us. And Jesus says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Nothing's more natural than your right hand. How about your right eye? Huh? He's saying that's the measure, uh, the degree of concern that we ought to have when sin reigns in our moral bodies. That's how serious it is. Second, the defining features of living sacrificially Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Listen to how it's described, holy and acceptable to God. Here's how offering ourselves up to God looks. It looks like a holy life, a life that is acceptable to God. No Christian rightly serves God according to his mercies apart from practical holiness. Holiness is not a popular idea in the world. It describes what God defines as good. It identifies what he defines as good, and it lives in light of that. And it restrains and it rejects what he defines as evil. So holiness here primarily means to be set apart. And this regards offering ourselves to God in a holy, living way, in doing what is acceptable to God as an offering for his glory. And as we'll see, service and worship is what we're set apart to. That's the end. But once again, this is a holiness of conduct that the apostle is speaking about. Holy and acceptable living before God must be our passion as those who have received the mercies of God. It ought to permeate all of our lives. And remember what our blessed hope is, the glorious appearing of our Lord. And remember why that is in 1 John chapter 3, because when he appears, we'll be like him. And remember what John says in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, that because of that hope, his glorious appearing and us being like him, now we purify ourselves. You see, the mercies of God doesn't just give us hope for eternal life. It gives us hope that we could be like him now. How could you expect to be like Jesus now? Chapter 8 of Romans says, we have the Spirit of God in us so that we have the mind of the Spirit and we walk according to the Spirit. That's part of union with Christ. That's part of trusting Christ. That's part of knowing that we are dead in our trespasses in sin, but in Christ we are alive. Is that the Spirit is working in us. And so we, as according to Philippians, are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing and with the knowledge that God is at work in us. God is at work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. To be able to offer self a sacrifice when it doesn't feel like it. Oh man, that sin seems really good right now. And apart from the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. But the Spirit of God is that gift He's given to us so that we can live out this life by His power 
by his mercies in a holy way. Christians cannot live in the pursuit of sin without conviction or conscience of it while supposedly living sacrificial lives before God. Holiness and an acceptable practice defines the sacrifice. Do you hear that? Don't imagine, here's something for us, don't imagine that going to Africa to work in that orphanage, if you've got a whole bunch of weights and sins behind you, is going to please God. If you're not going to be willing to repent of your daily practice of sin, do not suppose that some service to God that will render to Him something you think will be important will please Him. We are not to be pursuing sexual sins while at, our same t- at the same time giving our time and en- energy to feed the poor, supposing that in that good work we're going to please God to, uh, to appease Him for this other lifestyle that we're, we're living out. We are not to be full of hate and bitterness toward our neighbor while we are supporting a starving child or an orphanage in Africa. You don't despise the homeless here to go serve the homeless over there. We are not to look sanctified in our pews while we sit in the the seat of the scornful the rest of the week. All those sinners, oh... And you sit in the pew and you don't remember that you are a sinner. We're here not because of our righteousness. We're here by the mercies of God. And you will only pursue this self-sacrificial life if you know that God has shown you mercy. And that will keep you from an act of thinking you are righteous in yourself. You see? If you realize that the way of self-sacrifice is grounded upon the mercies of God, then as you're sacrificing what you long to do, the sins, you will not heap up for yourself this pharisaical mind that thinks, oh, I'm so much better than that tax collector who's a sinner next to me. Thank you that I'm not like him. But you'll always come to God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the way of self-sacrifice. That's the way that you will actually be sanctified. Because it's going to always in tune or induce you and to remind you that you need to be sanctified still. Nobody that sits here and goes, oh, I'm so good this week. I just did a great job and everything that I did is going to feel the need of sacrificing anything. But until we are in the image of Christ, free from sin, full of love, full of righteousness, full of zeal of the Lord, for the Lord. Man, we are so zealous for so many things. And rarely are we zealous for the glory of God, holiness, the kingdom of Christ. With this last political revolution, not by a revolution as an an act of revolution, but revolving cycle, I saw so much zeal for politics. Throughout the whole COVID number, I don't think I've seen so much zeal for the kingdom of Christ in many Christians as I saw for the politics that just happened. And these politics won't save a single soul. 
And I have my politics, and I think it's right to. I think it's right to be informed biblically about them. But shouldn't we pray and shouldn't part of our li- being a living sacrifice, presenting ourselves, turn into something like Jesus when he went to the temple and he cast out the wicked things that were happening in service of God? And what did he say about himself? The zeal of the Lord consumes me. The zeal of his righteousness, not as the world or as religion defines it as we build our traditions, but as his word defines it, as it is so often we forget what it is. Amos 5, 21 through 24 has a word for us about how we are to offer up this sacrifice in our body before God. God said to Israel, who are living in so many sorts of sin and still offering up all these sacrifices. He said, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, which is where we get the language of Romans 12.1, of offering ourselves up a living sacrifice. It comes from this shadow, these pictures, these types. He says, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice or righteousness, those two words can be interchanged here, let them roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What did God say to, to Saul when Saul did not obey God and had all of the best of of the Amalekites, uh, uh, sw- not swine, but cattle to offer up to God as a sacrifice. Oh, we kept this for you to sacrifice this to you. And he said in a rebuke to Saul through the prophet, obedience is what is required. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God doesn't need any of those things. But here, what we're seeing, here's, here's the remarkable avenue of what we're seeing. What Paul is describing is a sacrifice that is obedience. Do you see that? It's a sacrifice that is the obedience of our will to God and what he defines as good and evil. That's what he's doing. Do not confuse what Paul is calling for as merely a great outward or public service toward God. Chrysostom, the 5th century Christian, said this of what this means as being a holy sacrifice. He says, And how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look to no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let the tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do nothing lawless, And indeed, it has become a whole burnt offering. Colossians 3.5 says it this way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Mortify the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. A life of willing obedience to God is the essence of our living sacrifice. And much of what we must offer to God as a holy and acceptable sacrifice, most people may never know we've done it. And that's okay. Most people don't know what you struggle with in your secret life, in your temptations, 
It's those things. You see, you don't, it's not about going out in the public and putting new robes on and saying, look at how righteousness I am, righteous I am like the Pharisees. This is between you and the God of mercies. And yes, that will show in the way that we live out our lives. Especially in the internet age, what is done in secret might be the most vice, the most vices that we struggle with. By the mercies of God, the sin that would, or that used to come so easy, we don't want anymore. That used to feel so natural, we're, we're seeking its death. That used to be part of our daily activity, and maybe we pursued it. Now we have to throw it off. We have to present ourselves to God and say, by your mercies, I will give that up. I will turn away from that and I will do what's right. What do we call this sort of life? This sort of Christian life? This is the pattern of the Christian life. Third, the life of worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Listen, to which is your reasonable spiritual worship or service? And we'll talk about why these words are the way they are in so many of our Bibles. Many of you, if you're like me, you know the King James says your reasonable service. There's no difference in the manuscripts, but these words that the apostle uses are so rich with meaning. That they can be translated various ways. The NASB says the spiritual service of worship is what it describes. The two Greek words that are rendered here, spiritual worship or reasonable service, are the words logikon, which means rational literally, or reasonable, and latrius, which means service or worship. And those two ideas, service and worship, can be interchanged because latrius means service and worship for God. It's for the service or worship of God. And, and both of them can be used. And so I think that there's no problem with understanding service or worship, but by service you have to be thinking this is a way of worshiping God, rendering unto Him worship, even with our activity. But the difficult word, as I was studying it, was that first word, logicon. It comes from the root word logos. You, you've heard of that word, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Logos is what we translate there to word. It means word or logic. And logicon literally means rational. can be understood as what is reasonable in a rational sense. And this idea should be maintained for the context does demand it. Paul began this verse by grounding what he's saying on the mercies of God. Certainly, it shouldn't surprise us then that in light of the mercies of God, it is reasonable to conclude that we should render ourselves wholly to him in the conduct of our lives. Total commitment to live for God at the cost of sin that used to define us is not a radical view in light of the mercies of God. It's only radical in, lives of the, in, in view of the lives we used to live. It's not radical to, to say we should live 
for the glory of God, no matter what it costs us. God gave everything for our salvation. He's promised us everything, an eternal inheritance laid up in heaven for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, and it goes on and on. Romans 1 through 11, just read it through. All of that is ours by the mercy of God. Therefore, whatever God requires of us is not radical to any extent. It's reasonable. It's fitting. So that idea needs to remain in our mind. And yet what Paul is saying, I think, goes beyond just that it's reasonable or that it's fitting here. In the days when Paul was writing this, there was two things that happened in worship, in religion. One was superstition, and superstition was an undesirable trait, especially by the Greeks, because it had nothing to do with the mind. It had nothing to do with what was true. It had to do with just by what somebody fancied or imagined to be so. And so you had people living out their lives in this, this fanciful way without any truth behind it, without any real, reality behind it. And the Greeks despised such an idea. And when they talked about true worship, they used this word, logicon. Because this was a worship that related to what was rational or what to them was true. What was understood. And I think Paul means this. Us to, rem to keep this in mind by this word. There is no service to God. There is no worship to God apart from truth. Apart from truth. Understanding the truth of our standing by the mercies of God. But when we know what it means to have a standing in the worship of, or in the mercies of God, when we know what that means, and then we, we give our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, you know what Paul, I believe, is saying? That is true worship. In light of what he's done, that is reasonable. That is rational. That is true. Remember what Paul said in the old, as, about the Old Covenant, that it has gone away. It, it is past. There's no more sacrifices for sin, the, authors to, the author to the Hebrews has said. Christ died once and for all time. But now we live by the Spirit under this new and abiding principle and hence, our spiritual life before God is not made up of ceremonial practices and as in form, former times. And therefore, Paul teaches by this word and by this truth, the logicon, that not only is it fitting to offer up our bodies as an oblation or as living sacrifices to God, it is true worship as opposed to superstition. It's not, active, it's not an act of vanity. It is not an act of vanity to forsake sin even if it costs, and it will cost. Listen, there is a way that this applies in this world where if you reject sin and, and live out your life in obedience to God, it will cost you. More and more it will cost you. And this is not a political problem in the first place. It's a sin problem. Does the knowledge of God, therefore, in Christ, compel you to live for his glory in this way. 
As we consider that living the Christian life entails nothing less than the willful offering up of ourselves to God for his purpose, we are once again brought to the question of faith. Do you trust God with your whole self? Do you trust him? Do you trust that anything that you give up in this world, you will receive back sevenfold in the life to come, which is perfect? Does his love constrain you and your appetite for sin? Does his forgiveness of you compel you to die to your right to feel offended and so to forgive those who offend you? Seven times seven times, 70 times. Does the gift of Christ dry up the greed and envy and bitterness and hatred in your heart so that you can forgive, so that you can live in love towards those who even are your enemies? Will you strive against sin, flee temptation, give up your respectability in the world if need be? Give up your job, your comfort, your home because of your commitment to his will. Will you risk being an outcast of your family because he has adopted you as part of his? This is the cost of discipleship. And that's what Paul is talking about in all of this. What is your knowledge of the love of God towards you? It's that knowledge, it's that truth that will enable you to live as a sacrifice before God. Those who believe the gospel and therefore have the assurance of God's unending love and eternal life must also trust or commit themselves wholly to God's disposal now in this life. We know the goodness of God, that because of it, in the grace of God, he has brought us to repentance. We know the triumph of our Savior Savior over our sin and suffering once and for all. We know that the Spirit gives us life then, now to walk in his footsteps. The prospect of dying to self in every aspect of our conduct doesn't deter a Christian. It excites us. Do you want to be like Christ? This is the pattern. Our Lord taught that the Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And by the mercies of God, we will do just this as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is our rational or true reasonable service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we commit ourselves to you, not just in name, not just because we want the mercy, the grace, Lord, that comes through your declaration of us being righteous in Christ and being forgiven and having an inheritance laid up in heaven for us and and having the assurance of salvation But because of all those mercies, because your word is true, we can present our bodies every day a living sacrifice to you, which looks so foolish to the world, but is so good, and it's so right, it's so fitting, and it accords with what is true worship. For those that know that this world is not our home, we're pilgrims, but while we're here, We're already acting. We're already seeking to be sanctified to the image of Christ, whose image we'll be changed into when he returns and will be without sin then. So help us to purify ourselves now with even the same hope with which he is pure. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.